evening, my friends. Okay, so there are different types of consequences that we experience in life. Uh, That has become even more evident for me as I became a parent. Um, So there are a few different types of consequences. Uh, One, there are natural consequences, natural consequences of actions, such as um, a few weeks ago, me and Abby were playing in the backyard, or we were going to play in the backyard, but I forgot to pick up all of Duffy, our dog's dog poop, in the backyard off the ground. And so I uh, told Abby, Abby, come here. I'll uh, get into my arms. I'll carry you over to the playset, and you can play, and then I'll clean up the dog poop. Uh, and and. She didn't listen. I know, two-year-olds, right? Um, instead, she runs and steps right with her bare foot into dog poop. And she just, her face just goes, like, like she is just disgusted with this moment and goes, ah, you know, natural consequence for me because then I had to go spray her foot off and all of that, you know. Um, then there's logical consequences. Now, logical consequences are consequences that are given that are typically related, respectful, and reasonable, okay? So those are logical consequences. So for example, um, Asher knows not to draw on things that are in the house that are not made out of paper. Um, anything not made out of paper, not a great surface to draw on. Um, except Allie and I found crayon drawings on the side of the couch one day, but on the side of the couch, it's close to the wall. So like we couldn't have seen it. So it could have happened at any point in the last couple of months, right? And um, and so then we were like, hey, guys, who did this? And Asher goes, me. And, uh, and he owned it, which was great. So then we had a great conversation with him about it. Um, we chatted up with him about the importance of taking care of our home. It's our home. It's ours, family stuff, like that kind of stuff. And then the logical consequence is that he had to now go and clean up the, the damage. And so that was a logical consequence, okay? Both of these types of consequences focus on learning a lesson which is important because that's ultimately the goal. But not always, because there's a third type of consequence known as, uh, I refer to them as flipped lid consequences. Okay, Uh, so the term flipping your lid, you guys know what that means? It's the idea of like, your lid has flipped. You're, you're, you're beyond yourself, right? Beside yourself. Uh, you're, you are just so angry and frustrated uh, and you aren't thinking logically. You're not, you are thinking of... Um, how I felt uh, when one of my kids, I don't remember which kid, it's not to protect anonymity, uh, but one of my kids um, poked me in the eye and, I, and they said, I want to see what happens and just poked me right in the eye. Uh, and their reason was they wanted to see what would happen. And they found out what happened. My lid flipped and I just started yelling. Like whichever child this was, it was not going well for them. And I felt so awful after, but my lid had flipped. And so my response was not about helping them learn their lesson. It was about raining down wrath to satisfy that because I had been poked in the eye. We reconciled and then I got to learn my lesson as we just chatted about the importance of not walking around poking people in eyes. Um, So it's important to learn our lessons in life so that we grow in maturity. We're fair? Now there is, of course, a fourth option when it comes to consequences, and probably potentially there's a lot more, but for the, the sake of this, there's a fourth option, no consequences. 
which is when somebody refuses to let us experience the natural consequences of our action or when a logical consequence is never instilled. And so this approach ultimately doesn't help a person learn a lesson. It stunts our growth because you never get to learn the lesson. You never experience the natural consequence. You never learned that it affects others or themselves in negative ways. And so you have on one end of the spectrum, no consequence land. On the other end of the spectrum, slip lid consequence land. Both not ideal lands to live in. Is that fair to say? Okay. Um, hopefully you guys don't yell at kids when, you po- when they poke you in the eye, but it will hurt. Um, so let's talk tonight about how you envision God understands consequences. How do you envision him in your mind when you think of the word consequence with God? Do you think of him as a dad who is just so kind, so gracious, so loving that he would rarely have ever usher consequence into our story or allow consequence into our story? For others of us, we might think of God and think, well, maybe he loves me, but quietly in my heart, I, I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid of the consequences that he might give because his lid is going to flip at any time. And when he does, there's nowhere to run or hide from him because he's omnipresent. So like, it's not working out well for me. And see, with either of those, there's an understanding we're carrying. And we could not even consciously be aware that we believe either of those realities about God. But at a subconscious level, that might be exactly what our hearts consider about the character and nature of God. So tonight, we're going to talk about what kind, of, what kind of father God is. What does it mean that God is just in the middle of a world that is filled with so much injustice? And so we're going to be turning back to 2 Peter tonight, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if you're with us the last, uh, two weeks ago, we began a sequence of three kind of interconnected stories that the author of this letter, uh, a guy named Peter, is using to inform a largely Jewish audience about discovering God's grace through his justice. Now, last time we focused kind of on a bizarre story from our human, our modern perspective about the origins of the flood narrative um, all the way back in Genesis chapter six. And, it would, and we saw how Peter was using this lesson, this ancient lesson to teach this church and specifically the false teachers that were in their midst that even when we don't see God moving, he is bringing about justice to unbend what we creations naturally desire to bend out of shape. His grace is multiplying through his justice. And so now we're going to continue uh, into the second story in chapter 2, verse 5. And what we're going to do is we're going to learn another lesson about God's justice and what kind of consequences God brings. So verse 5. If he, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah who is a herald of righteousness with seven others. Now, the seven others were his wife, his three sons, and their three wives, okay? So, and the seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
Now, I'm assuming that in some version, most of us have heard about this story, whether you've ever read it in the Bible or saw it in a movie. Um, Peter is writing here about the flood narrative that's recorded all the way back in Genesis 6 through 8, where the author is explaining the cause of the flood when he wrote this. Verse 5, Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved them to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out humankind whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is a story, amongst others, that's important that at some point in your faith journey that you significantly wrestle with. Because if, if, if we actually believe any of this is true, this is, this is weighty stuff, fair? Like we read this and we're like, wow. Because it looks as if God had flipped his lid, right? His punishment seems unimaginably harsh. And it makes sense if you're wondering, how could a loving God do something like this? And see, Peter uses this narrative that is difficult for our modern ears, but not so for the ancient original audience of this letter. See, the original Jewish audience had a more complete understanding of God's justice than we do today. See, what they believed that this story revealed about God's justice is he is about preserving life, even in a story that seemingly tells the opposite narrative. A story of God allowing natural consequences instead of revealing an instable deity who has flipped his lid on humanity. Now, how can that at all be possibly true? Well, to first understand what this port, the portrait that this passage crafts about the character and nature of God, we need to first understand the image that it's revealing about who we humans were. It says that humanity was bankrupt, that it was broken, that it was evil, that it was ungodly, totally corrupted. The image that we're getting is they are continually choosing their own way over God's every intention, every thought, totally evil. And if you're like me, then your natural thought is, well, I mean, if that's true, I don't know how that's true, but if that's true, I can't imagine how bad these human beings must have been. Fair? Like how bad were they? This is the wrestle in fact, that a, let's call it less than biblically faithful movie entitled Noah that came out from Darren Aronofsky a few years ago, uh, starring Russell Crowe, tried to wrestle with, where they paint a humanity that is absolutely barbaric. And so that's kind of the image that we can have in our mind. Like if we're trying to justify this at all, it's like they must have like been walking around just like slapping one another all the time. Like, like what they, like I can't imagine how bad these humans were. And so we're all thinking, obviously they must have been so, 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 so much worse than we are today. But here's the reality. The scriptures don't spell out 
what this played out like in the daily lives of the humans in this ancient world. And what the scriptures paint is a portrait that we are not nearly as different from them as we might think. See, we think of humans as basically good. In fact, according to a recent Barna survey that was done uh, in America, 69% of Americans in general agreed with the following statement. Humans are basically good. Okay, 69% of Americans across the board. 70% of self-identifying Christians stated that to be the case. They believed that humans are basically good. So I imagine that many of us, even in this room, would probably have agreed. Humans are basically good. We might look and go, I, like, our world's not perfect. It's far from perfect. We can agree on that. But there are still, I mean, there are charities doing incredible work across the globe. People don't slam the door in front of one of their spaces on a regular basis. You typically, like people oftentimes will hold the door for you. Sometimes people even let you merge in traffic unless it's on 192. And us cast members, we even are trained to go above and beyond putting guests in front of ourselves all the time, right? So it makes sense that our, our initial inclination is to believe that we humans are basically good, maybe misguided on that whole sin thing. Maybe that's a part of it, but like basically like we're good, right? But see, this is vastly different than the image that the scriptures paint about humanity. The words that are used throughout the scriptures are really strong language, that the human condition is filled with corruption, darkness, bondage, death, decay. That might sound like an exaggeration or some type of religious fear tactic, but let's think about this with a level of honesty for a minute. See, God, according to the scriptures, is intrinsically at his core. Life, light, freedom, love. As the creator, we know that he is powerful. As the one who gave humanity the, the choice to love him or to leave him, we know that he understands love better than we do. As we read about his incredible care and heart for the hurting, the marginalized, and the oppressed, we know that he is rich in compassion. And in the same pages of scripture, where we discover the character and nature of this good God, we also hear his voice regarding his desires, his commands for humanity to flourish. Now, here's a question. Apart from God empowering you, whenever there is a difference between your way of doing things and God's way of doing things, which one do you pick? If you're like me, you minimize those difference in choices. Like you might consider the thoughts or opinions of like a friend or a parent or a boss. You, you take it into consideration like, oh, that's what God says in the scriptures. Like, I'll take that into consideration as I ultimately decide what's going to happen in my life. But ultimately, you got to make the best decision for you. And God's just like a best friend, maybe. You respect his thoughts, but you're going to make your decision. See, this is the image that the scriptures describe is the evil that is lurking in the human heart. At the core of the human heart is an innate desire to choose my way over God's way. Whenever there is a wrestle, our desire is me, what I think is best. That's, 
if you read Genesis to Revelation, that is one of the most consistent themes is that when we are put to the test, which way are we humans going to choose? God's way, my way. We choose my way. Now, it's not that we never choose God's way, but we choose God's way when it makes sense with my way. So in essence, we're still choosing my way. And so when we hear the stuff about like the, the, every thought of the human heart was evil, we're like, I'm not Thanos. You know, like you're, I, I, I'm not a villain. I, there, there are villains in this world and those people, yeah, maybe that's true of them. So like all of, all of humanity was like Hitler or something. Like, like maybe everyone was like that back then, but now that's not us. And we're not saying that everyone is a genocidal person. In fact, humans are capable of being kind, compassionate, caring, sacrificial, putting others before themselves sometimes. We are capable of that. So this isn't saying that by that every thought of the human heart is evil, that they, were, that they never did anything nice for one another. That um, as a baby came out of a, mo- a mother's womb, that the mom was just like, yeah, or that, that nobody cared about one another in any way, shape, or form. We have no reason to believe that. But at the core of humanity is a desire for our way, my way, in ways big and small. So God, then, in light of that, where is he? Where is he in this story? Is God uncaring about what is going on in the human condition, prepared to offer no consequences? Or is he attached some arbitrary consequence for when we disobey because he has flipped his lid on us? See, when we understand that the true state of humanity is utterly helpless, spiritually dead, as Lauren read in the scriptures, that we were dead, and the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Then we can begin to get a vision for why God operates in the ways that he does and why it's so easy that that makes zero sense to us. Because I'm not God. God's going to operate in ways that don't make sense to me because I'm not God. I've never been in his position. I might have a better way, but this isn't my cosmos. It's his. And that's hard. That's hard for me. Because I think I have a really good way, by the way. I have a really, really good way. Ask me about anything and I will give you a very, very good way. It's mine. You probably have one of those too. See, we humans are not simply sick with sin. We are walking dead with it. The closest thing that comes to mind is zombies. See, apart from God, we might look alive like a zombie, but there is something clearly different, right? Any zombie movie you've ever seen because you like those kind of movies or you accidentally saw and you had nightmares for the rest of the week, right? Back in 2013, there was a um, rom-com that was based on a retelling of Romeo and Juliet. It had a couple differences. One, um, it was set in modern times, okay, slightly apocalyptic times. And the second is Romeo was um, a zombie. And uh, Juliet was uh, the daughter of a zombie hunter. And so the movie was called Warm Bodies. I thought about showing a clip, but then I realized um, not everyone in this room wants to see a zombie. 
even rom-com version. So I'm not going to show the clip. Um, and I'll be careful with what I say so that you don't have nightmares. But in the movie, R, um, we know it's short for Romeo. Like, that's your little, like, wink, wink. But um, R doesn't believe that there's anything wrong with him. Like, he is, he is a zombie. All of his friends are zombies. None of them remember what it was like to be alive. There's a nagging part of him that realizes something's missing, but he doesn't know what it is. They can't really even talk to each other. Him and his best friend, they just go, eh. Like, like they shrug. It's like, can't even talk, but they don't even know about talking because they don't do it. They're all zombies. And so that normalizes their condition. See, in the, in, in the ancient world before the flood, they had wanted things their own way and it was slowly destroying themselves and their entire planet. Their desires weren't leading to flourishing, but death, destruction, bondage. So after generation, after generation, after generation, after generation of God's patience, God ultimately allows the human to experience their own way. The ultimate natural consequence of you choosing life apart from God is death. And so they experience the natural consequence of their zombie-like existence. But God was neither uncaring about the their condition, nor was he ready to act like some type of demented father whose lid had flipped. He acted graciously through his justice. This is what Paul starts writing about in Romans chapter one, for, where it says, for although they knew God, humanity, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they made a God out of creation instead of creator. And therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation, the, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what Paul is writing about in this letter is a major theme that is going to carry out throughout the book of Romans. And truly, it's a consistent theme without the script, throughout the scriptures, which is this idea of giving them up to blank. Uh, we could call this passive justice or wrath, but it's, it's ultimately natural consequences. You want your own way? I'm not going to stop you. And see, what happens at the flood is the natural consequence that parallels the beginning of the book of, of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, on the second day of creation and the third day of creation, there are a few things that happen. On the second day, the cosmic chaos waters from above and below are separated, making space out of this cosmic chaos waters for life to flourish. And then on the third day, out of the sea, comes land, a place for creatures of the air, creatures of the land, and creatures of the sea to live. God is about life thriving, even from the beginning. This is God's way. God's grace brings order, life, and flourishing. Apart from him, that's life. Life is the cosmic chaos water existence, filled with darkness, death, lifeless. But God's grace brings order, life, and flourishing. But see, we humans, we naturally are bent 
towards our own way over God's. And so with the arrival of the flood, God, what he is ultimately doing is he is giving them their own way completely. Genesis chapter seven, the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the water. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The the waters from above and below are starting to implode in on themselves. The rain starts to pour. It says that jets of water start to rise from from underneath the seas and water is sprouting. The cosmic chaos waters are paralleling. It's an act where in Genesis 1, we get the acts of creation. This is an act of decreation. See, the only reason you have breath in your lungs, the only reason that that things are continuing to move in an orderly existence throughout the face of the cosmos is because God's hand is holding it there. But our desire is our own way. And in Genesis chapter 7, we begin to see You want your own way? Your own way is not creation, it's decreation. And so he gives humanity to itself. He gives humanity the ability to move towards that. God's way sustains life to keep the chaos waters at bay. But for now, he allows a stay to allow decreation to come up. And this happens because God is life. He is order, stability. He is freedom. That is who he is. God isn't arbitrary. Death isn't some arbitrary picked consequence for sin. Scriptures talk about for the wages of sin is death. Did you ever wonder about why he picked death? Like, why didn't he pick like you all turn into fruit flies? Right? Like, that's not, like, God wasn't arbitrarily going, you know, death sounds like a great outcome for this. No. God isn't picking an outcome. It's the natural consequence of anything apart from him. He is life, light, freedom, and love. Anything apart from him is the opposite of that by its very nature. Just as light, just as light, is the thing that exists. Darkness and eclipsing. All darkness is, is absence of light. And so all that can happen in absence of God's life, light, and freedom is the polar opposite. And our hearts, our evil hearts, our attempts are always moving towards what makes sense to us, what is right in our own eyes. Now, if God is life, then choosing away from God is naturally death. If God is order, then choosing away from God is naturally chaos. If God is freedom, then choosing away from God is naturally bondage. If God is light, then choosing away from God is naturally darkness. And if God is a creator, then choosing away from God is naturally leading us towards decreation. And see, this type of cosmic decreation was exactly what occurred with the flood. They wanted life apart from God and his desires, so he gave them what their their twisted hearts desired. And we can look at that and go, man, that's harsh. Or man, that I, I'm glad I wasn't there. But the reality is, is that is the posture of my heart apart from God's movement in it. I want my own way. I really like my own way. But 10 years ago, the Spirit of God came into my life. And he's doing a work in me that he will carry to completion. I'm not there yet, but he is instituting life, light, and freedom in here. I'm not perfect. So far from perfect. Hang out with me for an afternoon.
not perfect. But the perfect one lives within me. The one who is defined by life, light, and freedom is within me. And so my job isn't to convince you of really anything. And if you're still struggling with this passage, uh, I don't blame you. It's hard to understand who God is. It's hard to understand when things go against our natural way of thinking. And for me personally, this took a long time to wrestle through, to simply come to an understanding that God doesn't do things the way that always makes the most sense to me. And that is actually a good thing. Because if he did things the way that always naturally makes sense to me, this world would not be doing very well. Now, in our world, in our planet of death, natural disasters occur, acts of terrorism are carried out, the vulnerable are exploited, loved ones die before a time that makes sense to us. Real things happen. I remember asking my grandpa about this when my dad was um, dying a few years ago in in a medically-induced coma. We were weary. It had been weeks. Maybe I've shared this part of the story with you before. Forgive me if I have. But I asked my grandpa something like this. I said, Grandpa, how can this not infuriate you towards God? Because I was furious. I was like counting all the tally of the things I've done for God and like telling God about them. Like I was not in a great space. I was like, how, Grandpa, how can this not shake your trust in God right now? And his response is what shook me. My grandpa was such a strong presence. And he's just bawling his eyes out. Because he knows the inevitable is coming. And he knows that he is going to soon have to bury his second child, a thing that no parent should ever have to do, no matter how old. And he said to me, Danny, because he is God, where else could I possibly turn? Now, that might not make sense to you. Because in our pluralistic world, where there are many gods, many belief systems, many faiths. You just go, okay, the Christian God is not doing the trick. <laughs> Like, turn to another. There's other gods to to worship and call on. Like, this doesn't seem to be working. But if God is truly God, then there's nowhere else to turn to. If he is the one who is truly the creator, if he is the one who truly oversees life and death, if he is the sustainer of every breath in my lungs, if he is the true wooer of our hearts, then who else could we turn to, but even better yet, who else could we possibly desire to turn to? And that was hard, but I saw that in my grandpa. My grandpa was just so strong in that moment. And here was I, I was, I mean, I've already been a pastor at that point for years. And, and I am like, ah! I am broken. And my grandpa and his faith is strong. A friend reminded me how in um, Avengers Infinity War, Dr. Strange sees every possible result of Thanos uh, pursuing the Infinity Stones. Um, and, and Dr. Strange sees out of 14 million, uh, 65 different futures, his decision uh, that, he, that makes zero sense to anyone else needs to be played out. 
he needs to hand over to Thanos his Infinity Stone, bringing him one step closer to collecting them all and bringing upon the world a very, very dark season. And it makes zero sense to everyone. You're like, what are you doing? And you're watching, you're like, how can this possibly work out well? Now, that analogy breaks down at a certain point because God doesn't look at 14,065 futures and go, oh, this is the one that's gonna work. God is the creator of the future. He is the sovereign and all-powerful God of the cosmos. But this means that either God is trustworthy or he is not. Fair? If he is, then I have to realize that he is going to cause or allow or command things to occur that are going to be beyond my human comprehension. And see, this is what This is what Peter's audience would have had to understand, that the flood is not a story of God's cruelty, but of his grace. Because while we are focused on the decreation, God is clearly focused on his recreation. See, the focus isn't meant to just be on the devastation and the destruction as the flood decreates the world, but as God sustains humanity and all of animal life on this boat. Noah, his wife, his sons, their wives, they, they have stayed connected with him. He saw favor on them and he wanted to preserve humanity. He was, what he was ushering in wasn't a call of, wow, these humans, these ones are getting it right. They're perfect. So they will be my people. In fact, if you follow Noah's story further, what you're gonna see is that they also have zombie hearts. They also have sin and death rooted within them. The only difference is that they simply got on the boat. They saw they had a desperate need for God in that moment and they got on the boat. God's presence was not fully removed from the moment of the flood. His grace was evident in that he wasn't trying to just destroy humanity. He was trying to save it, which is the ultimate image that we get towards the end of the flood narrative. It says, Chapter eight, verse 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird and offered burnt altar offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of mankind. For the intention of their heart is evil from his youth. What? Did you catch that? What he just said before the flood, why, why am I decreating? Because the, the human heart is evil. Okay, now we're after the flood. So surely now the human heart is good. Nope, I'm never gonna do, I'm never gonna execute justice the same way. Why? Because the human heart is still evil. That's, that's a bit of a head scratcher, right? Like, uh, why, then why all, the, why all the theatrics? Like, why this story? Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, I'm not gonna do this the same way again. I'm revealing something about who I am, that my goal will always be to sustain life, even in the midst of the brokenness, even in the midst of the darkness and the death. And God goes on to explain, actually, if you continue in chapter eight, that he is going to hang a rainbow in the sky as if he is a God as if he's a hunter who has put his bow on the stand. 
to be this perpetual reminder that each time it rains, that he has hung his bow up, that his justice will never again be poured out as a flood on the earth. Going back to warm bodies. R, remember, he has only ever lived in zombie existence with other zombies to relate to. Until towards the beginning of the movie, he meets a woman, a human for the first time. Her name is Julie. You see what they did there too? And something changes within him. He sees her and he is compelled by love. And all of a sudden, his heart begins to slowly beat. Her life begins to transmit life into him. Her heart, filled with warmth and love, begins to awaken something deep within him. And he is brought back to life. And see, Noah in this story is meant to be an image of the one who had come, who is going to be the savior, who is going to bring us onto the lifeboat with him. But he's a very woefully inadequate Jesus. He's not the Messiah. He just is a signpost to him. See, while Noah was like every other human who is zombie to the core, Jesus came into humanity as the first human since Adam and Eve filled with true life. And while God hung up his bow from ever executing justice in the same way again, that doesn't mean that God stopped pouring out justice. In fact, you could argue, and I would say you would argue correctly, that the most horrific execution of God's justice was not the flood. It was thousands of years later on a cross on Calvary when creator is executed by creation. And the fullness of God's justice is poured out as a flood on one person, Jesus. And when his justice is poured out, he takes the fullness of the natural consequence of our sin on himself. He takes the fullness of death on himself. And that we, could have life, that in his presence now, our hearts can begin to beat for the first time ever. Because it's only through God's divine justice that we can ever truly understand his grace. Can I get an amen? If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then... Verse nine, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. In other words, this doesn't sugarcoat that God is a God of justice. It's just simply stating that his justice is an outpouring of his grace. And if you wanna see the ultimate demonstration of God's justice, you simply look to Jesus. to bring our zombie hearts back to life. And I'm so grateful that a decade ago, that's what he began to do in my heart, to make it beat for the first time. I'm not perfect, I'm far from it. But what God has began in me, I'm praising him that he will carry it through until the final day. And if you don't know what you think about God and about Jesus, here's simply what I would hope that you would walk away with and ponder this week. This is a quote from um, Tim Keller. And he repeatedly taught this. He said, the gospel is simply this. 
that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we could ever dare hope. Thank God our righteousness is not rooted in our rightness but in the grace of Jesus, a God who took seriously the natural consequence of sin and he took it on himself. So for all who would believe in him would not perish, have everlasting life. And so if you wanna see what kind of dad God is, continue to look to the cross. If you see the, the evil in our world around us, the injustice, the oppression, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, look to the cross to see what our good dad is willing to go to to make sure that we don't get the full brunt of justice. He lengthens our days by the sweetness of his breath. May you and I discover this week how perfectly just and unbelievably gracious our God is. And so what I, what, as I've been just studying this, y'all, this week, it's just taken me to a sweet space of just praise praise for our good God, our loving Father. And so I want to invite us into that space right now. So I want to invite the band to come on up. And what I want to invite us into is just, we're just going to take a couple minutes just to sit at your, at, in your seat, maybe put your hands open or better yet, even just putting them in front of you in a, in a posture of praise. And just, I, I, I know that in this room, there is hurt, uh, there is difficult situations. There is hard diagnosis. There is difficult realities. And yet God doesn't leave us in them. We can struggle and worship. And so I want to give us that space to be able to do that. And if you're here tonight and you're like, I don't know about this whole prayer thing or about this whole Jesus guy. Maybe just take a few minutes, just ponder this. Disagree with me. Press. Most importantly, bring it to God because he can wrestle well. So let's take a few moments to simply give him praise.
dad. Thank you. 